many years ago, when I was teaching school, not often, but on occasion, I would show up for class without a lesson plan. Now, I had my reasons for that, you know, uh, married just over a year, just a, a few week old baby, but those are just excuses. At the end of the day, I just did not give it my best. Now, if you've never taught school before, let me just tell you, showing up for class without a lesson plan is like going to the ocean and pouring in some blood and saying, here, sharky, sharky, come and get me, because the students know it. They can smell it, and they'll go after you. And just because you tell them to sit there and uh, work on something else quietly while you figure it out doesn't mean they're going to do that. So it should have come no, as no surprise to me that two girls in my classroom with nothing to do would start mouthing at each other. Or that before I could get my shoes on, because yes, this was West Virginia, and I always took my shoes off under my desk, that they would be out of their seats throwing punches, hair flying, or that I would have to come running from behind my desk in my socks and go down the aisle and break them up, which, having done that, the rest of the class burst into laughter. Mr. Bailey doesn't have his shoes, so shoes on. And so there was chaos throughout the classroom, right? All because I was not prepared. All because I did not give my best. Had I done that, None of that would happen. I think it's a reasonable thing for all of us to do, to be prepared, to work hard, to give our best. The good news for us as believers in Christ is that there is the grace of God, right, at work in our lives, uh, interceding on our behalf, uh, making up for our shortcomings and failures. But listen, you and I should never allow the grace of God to relieve us from the responsibility of working hard and giving our best back to the Lord. He deserves that from us. The Apostle Paul says to you and me, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. Being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Because you and I honor Christ in our hearts, we must give him our best. That's what I want to talk about this morning as we return once again to the Great Commission. You'll find that in the Gospel of Matthew, the last chapter, chapter 28. So when you've found Matthew 28 in your own Bible or the Pew Bible or there in your bulletin, if you would stand as we hear read together the word of the living God. Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18, this is the word of the Lord. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your word, your holy word, your ancient word. 
come to us through sacrifice. Lord, we pray now that you would uh, help us through the power of your spirit to open our hearts to your word. And spirit of God, we know that when uh, you join the truth of the word, change happens. I pray that would happen among us now as we together come around to your word. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. I could have covered the Great Commission in one sermon. Said the guy who spent four and a half years in Deuteronomy. But I just could not speed past these parting words of Jesus. These are his words to his disciples and to us that are supposed to change our lives. These are the words of Jesus to us that are supposed to shape our lives. These are his words to us that tell us how it is that you and I ought to, to, to live our lives. These are Christ's words to us that prevent us from being lost in, in frenzied activity, but instead that allow us to be very steady and very intentional in this world. So, Having said that, that's my justification <laughs> for still being in the, in the uh, Great Commission. But this week, for the fifth week, we're going to take up this word teach once more. Jesus tells us to go into the world, to make disciples, and to teach, to teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded. And so for the past four weeks, we've been looking at ways four ways that will help us be more effective in our teaching. And each week we've looked at a snapshot from the life of Jesus. And through those snapshots, we've seen these four things about teaching. Number one, we must be compassionate. Number two, we must be welcoming. Number three, we must expect the Word of God to do what the Word of God does, and that is amaze and astonish, to continue to amaze and astonish us and those we teach. Last week, we saw that we must love the Word of God. It's so much easier to get others to love what they know you love. This morning, we're going to look at the fifth way. If you haven't guessed it already, it's we must give our best. We must give our best. And the snapshot for you this morning comes from the book of Malachi. It's the very last book in the Old Testament. And when Malachi concludes his writing, there are 400 years of silence. God will not speak anymore until his glory fills the night sky and he sends his angels to say, do not fear for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. But by the time Malachi writes, it's been a long road with the Lord since the exodus from Egypt. God's people have been faithful They've been faithless. They have wandered. They've been settled. They've been ruled by judges. They've been ruled by kings. They have been exiled from their country. And by the grace and the goodness and the faithfulness of God, they have been repatriated to that country. But instead of being more amazed by the faithfulness of the Lord, and instead of having a deepening relationship with Him with each passing day and year, God's people had apparently ceased to be awed 
by the holiness of God, who had acted powerfully and mercifully and graciously on their behalf. They had ceased to be awed by the fact that they could even have a relationship with the holy, 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 one and only, true and living God, who said to them, I have called you by name. You are mine. You are my chosen and precious possession. So here's the snapshot. These people are at the temple. They're everywhere. And they've come with their gifts to offer to the Lord. And so they have with them animals that they have chosen from their very own flock. But instead of bringing God their first and their best, as they were supposed to do, and as they promised they would do, instead they looked over their flocks, and they picked out the animals that they didn't want or couldn't use, the blind, the sick, and the lame. And they presented these animals to the priests. The priests should have been appalled by this offering. They should have resolutely rejected them. How dare you offer an animal like this to the one and only true and living God? But the priests did not reject the offering. Instead, they accepted what Scripture refers to as the defiled offering. And then with a ho-hum, grumbling, snorting, as Scripture says, uh, I really don't want to be your attitude. These priests serve that polluted food. They put it on the Lord's table, in effect saying, here, this is good enough for you. In response, God says, Oh, that there were one, one among you who would shut the doors to my temple that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. Not their first, not their best. And I give this snapshot to you in order to prime the pump just a little bit before we hear these words from the Apostle Paul. And these are words that Paul writes to his protege, his uh, assistant, uh, his mentee, uh, who's also a teacher of the word of the Lord. And Paul says this to Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Did you hear the sacrificial Uh, language in what Paul writes to Timothy. Present, present yourself to the Lord. Timothy, you are the offering. Present yourself to the Lord. A workman who has no need to be ashamed, rightfully handling the word of truth. So you see, you and I are now the offerings. We present ourselves to the Lord. So the question is, what kind of offering Are we bringing to the Lord? What kind of offering are we giving to him? We ought to be people who do our best to rightly handle the word of God. 
Paul writes this because Paul knows the power of the word of God. Paul has experienced it. He was converted by that word when Christ himself spoke to Paul. Paul's seen other people converted by the word of God. Paul has seen people's lives transformed by the word of God. Paul's seen people's lives sanctified by the Lord, by, by, by the word of God, just as Jesus prayed that it would be in the upper room. Father, Jesus prayed. Sanctify them, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And so Paul knows that teaching the word of God is well worth Timothy's best effort. And it's worthy of your best effort and my best best effort as well. Again, whether you're teaching in a formal setting or whether you're teaching around your dining room table, or across your back fence, or across your desk, whether you're teaching your, your little one or your rebellious teenager, you must give it your best. How do we know? How do we know when we are giving it our best? Well, I'm going to give you four characteristics, and, and all of these just come from the definition of this word that Paul uses, chooses to use for the word best. So the first characteristic is this. When you give your best to the Lord, you are eager. You are zealous to do God's work. You don't snort at it like the priests in Malachi's day. By necessity, that means that you are not indifferent. You are not apathetic. You are passionate about telling people the truth of the word of God. Secondly, When you're giving your best, it means that every morning when you get up, you affirm. You affirm the reality that you are called by Christ and that you belong to Christ. And then you accept that you will act and live and think in light of that call. Because you are serious about following Christ as his disciple. And so you affirm and you accept Thirdly, you know you are giving your best when you seek to fill up what grace has opened up. When you seek to fill up what grace has opened up. You you can think of it in terms of the verse that tells us to make the most of every opportunity. Lord, I want to fill up every opportunity that you give me by your grace to teach your word. I'm not going to ignore the opportunity. I'm not going to pass it by. I'm not going to leave it there empty. Lord, I'm going to fill it up by your grace. Fourthly, you give your best when your great hope, when your great hope and your end goal is to be found spotless and blameless. You give your best when your great hope and your great goal is that you will be found spotless and blameless. Giving our best means we're zealous to teach the word, acknowledge Christ's call. We seek to fill up each moment that God gives us, and we strive to be spotless and blameless. Now, giving your best takes a lot of work, doesn't it? Sounds to me like it does. A lot of emotional work, a lot of intellectual work, a lot of work of prayer. Praying and praying and praying for every opportunity the Lord gives us are you giving your best to the Lord? Paul also instructs Timothy 
in these verses to handle the word of God rightly. Handle the word of God rightly. And this is what rightly means. It's a very vivid image. It means to cut a path in a straight direction. To cut a road across country that is forested or otherwise difficult to pass through. You you cut a road through there in a straight direction so that the traveler may go directly to his destination. That's handling the word of God rightly. So what's your goal? What's your destination when you are teaching? Can I answer that for you? Please say yes. Your goal, your destination when you're teaching is the person of Jesus Christ. He's your goal. He's your destination. He is the one to whom you seek to lead everyone else. And so you go to the word of God and you take them straight through the word of God so that they find themselves at the feet of Jesus. The Apostle Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's all Paul wanted to be in his life, to be like Christ. So he says, I count everything as a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. We take people straight through the word of God so that they find themselves at the person of Jesus Christ. So they know how it is that Jesus lived, how he acted, what he loved, who he loved, how he loved, how he related to his father, how he navigated his life, the choices he made, what brought him joy, what brought him sorrow, how he faced suffering, what were his commands, what's the mind of Christ, the one who created us and then became like us. Who better to give counsel to our lives in this world? It's delving into uh, the mysteries of the whys. Why, Lord? Why did you say that? Why did you do that? And not just in the New Testament, But the Old Testament as well, because all of Scripture is a testament to Christ. All of Scripture is a testament of Christ. He was there, the eternal Word of God before creation. He was there. It's about Him. In the garden, He was there. He's the one God promised to send to crush the head of Satan. Throughout the Old Testament, He appears to us as the angel of the Lord. It's all about Christ. And so you've got to find Christ throughout Scripture so that you can cut a straight path through the truth of the Word of God to the person of Christ. Handling the Word of God rightly is doing your very best to make that path clear and straight. So honor Christ in your heart. Work hard. Strive. Give your best. Because the Lord merits it from you. The Lord merits it from you. I realize that the word merit is a dirty word these days. It's been banished. Because it is, of course, the root word of meritocracy. A system that rewards merit and ability and effort. And that is an anathema. So now I'm going to read to you. This is a quote from Princeton University Press. Uh, I just continue to be amazed these days at what comes out of the Ivy League, right? The best and the brightest. Well, you know what I mean. The author writes this. Under meritocracy, wealth and advantage are merit's rightful compensation. 
not the fortuitous windfall of external events. So hear what the author is saying. Uh, You deserve nothing for hard work. You you get a reward, but you shouldn't, because in uh, in actuality, it was just a fortuitous windfall of external events. He goes on to say, in addition to being false, a growing body of research in psychology and neuroscience suggests that believing in meritocracy makes people more selfish, less critical, even more prone to acting in discriminatory ways. Meritocracy is not only wrong, it's bad and ought to be abandoned. Period. That's it. So true to our cultural norm of the day, the author merely cancels. He tears down, but he builds nothing up. He he offers no replacement, no alternative, simply destruction. Now, I assume, probably shouldn't, but I assume that his alternative is to make everything equal. But the author admits in his own words, quote, talent and capacity for determined effort depend a great deal on one's genetic endowments and upbringing. Now, how are you going to control that? How are you going to make genetics equal? Listen, I'm never going to be as smart. I'm never going to be as good-looking as Yates. (laughs) Or as Harry. Genetics prevent it from being true. Who's going to make a father and mother love their child instead of neglect them or even abuse them? I'll tell you who. Jesus Christ. And the transforming power of his Holy Spirit joined with his word. And that's why you and I must do our best. We must work. We must strive. We must prepare to to present Christ in the word of God. There will never be anything remotely like a level playing field in a broken, sinful world. You know why? Because Jesus says this, the poor you will have with you always. Because that's right and good? No. It's sin. And sin is going to be present with us in our world, doing its destructive work until Christ returns. Politicians, action groups, they seek to right the wrongs of sin without acknowledging that it is sin and without acknowledging the truth that God tells us about the human heart. God tells us the human heart is deceitful above all things and it is desperately sick or desperately wicked. Jesus He's the only one who can do anything about an evil heart. And that's why we go into the world and we teach Jesus. I say all of this not to ridicule culture or an author, but just to point out that it is a constant drip in our culture. Drip, drip, drip. And and I've lived long enough to know this, that Dripping eventually causes erosion. I've seen it happen. I see it happening now. The constant drip of Facebook, 
constant drip of CNN, constant drip media, constant drip elected officials, it's going to start to erode biblical truth. Again, I've seen it happen in the lives of believers because too often they spend more time on those other uh, alternatives than in the Word of God. And so I'm going to remind you of a few things right now. May I do so? Please say yes. What you have is not luck. It is not the fortuitous windfall of external events. It's given to you by God. Ephesians 4. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Christ apportioned it. He ascended on high and he gave gifts to his people. I remind you of James chapter 1. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Now, now, you and I have a responsibility. We have a responsibility, right, with what we have been given. We've got to work hard. We've got to give our best because God has given us those gifts, and we've got to use those gifts for God's glory. We've got to use all that God gives us to go into the world, to make disciples, to teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded, not to be self-congratulatory or discriminatory. No, it's to Christ and his glory. It comes as no surprise to me at least, that the world would oppose this. Because whatever God ordains, Satan, what would our culture say to Jesus? And to what his faithful life and his sacrificial death merited? Well, you were lucky enough to be God. A fortuitous windfall for you. So what you did doesn't really count for anything because a system was put in place whereby you were guaranteed not to fail. Can I plead with you this morning not to rob Christ of the merit of all that he did, not to rob him of the merit of the love that drove him to, to come to this world, to live in this world, to suffer in this world, to set his face like flint, to go to Jerusalem so that he would die in this world. Don't rob him of the restraining, uh, of the merit of the restraining power he demonstrated in not calling 10,000 angels to come and rescue him from the cross. His life, his death, his resurrection is meritorious. Can you say amen? Thank you. In his book, The Infinite Merit of Christ, The Glory of Christ's Obedience and the Theology of Jonathan Edwards, Craig Beale writes this, and also just a little side note. Jonathan Edwards was uh, a former president of Princeton University, so there was a day when good things came from that place. I should have said that. Here we go. Quote, Christ did all upon earth that God required and finished all by his death and his continuance in the grave. And then he went into heaven to make representation of what he had done and suffered before the throne of God. 
he enters with his blood and he shows his wounds and he has this plea to make for those who believe in him that he had done all that God required. Quote, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Christ's obedience was an infinitely meritorious act of love to the Father. Jesus used every gift given to him to live the meritorious life apart from which you and I would never be able to come to God. Merit, it's a beautiful thing. So handle the word of God rightly because it tells of the merit of Christ. The word of God tells of the merit of Christ. But please hear me say this. Every Protestant preacher is compelled to say this, and I'm going to say it. When Paul says to do your best, to work hard, to strive, it's not for your salvation. It is not for your salvation. I just read that. Christ says, I have finished all the work you gave me to do. On the cross, he said, it is finished. There's nothing left for you to do. There's nothing left for you to do to earn your salvation. That's why Christ has to be meritorious. Because his life, his death, his resurrection provided all you need for your salvation. That's why we sing from the heart. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. So your hard work is not for your salvation. Your hard work is because you honor Christ in your heart. You give your best because Christ merits it from us. He merits our very best. So I'll conclude by saying this. Give him your best. When you bring your offering of yourself to the Lord, give him your best. Prepare, strive, pray, work hard to handle God's word rightly so that you might take people straight to the person of Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, all we can say is thank you. Thank you for your meritorious life, death, resurrection. Thank you, Lord. We pray now that you would, through the power of your spirit, continue to make us be in all of who you are and what you've done. We ask, Lord, that you would prevent us from being like your people. And and they were your people called by your name, your treasured possession, who lost sight of your glory and your faithfulness, who ended up, Lord, showing contempt for you and to you because they didn't honor you in their hearts. May it not be so of us, Lord. May we honor you so highly that every day, even when we leave this place in the next few moments, we are zealous to teach your word, to handle it rightly, and to take people to Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.